Hello, and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about all of the various incarnations of Star Trek. This week, we're going to look at episode six of Lower Decks, entitled Terminal Provocations. Your hosts are the two Academy faculty members. I'm Dr. Rodney Cup, the philosophy guy in this podcast. And I'm Dr. Michael Merrick. I'm the media guy for this podcast. Our website is the Star Trek Academy.blogspot.com. And you can find links there. You can listen to the episodes, but you can also find links there uh, to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And we have links there to several of the different podcasting sites that you can follow us on with your uh, podcatching software. And before we go any further, we should probably say something about Star Trek Day, which was this past Tuesday. It was a whole day of streaming panels about the various incarnations of Star Trek, including those still to come, in recognition of the 54th year since the original series premiered in the United States in, on NBC. It premiered the 6th, September 6th in Canada and September 8th in the United States, but everyone forgets about the, the Canada premiere. I think that there were about five really interesting things we learned this past week. And yeah, there were some announcements. We saw some new trailers. But here are the things that I think were, were most interesting. They did confirm, as you and I talked last week, Rodney, that, that Star Trek Strange New Worlds will essentially be an episodic format, very similar to the original series, except that there will be character development arcs. So if something big happens one week, they won't completely forget about it next week. So the, the characters will grow and develop, but primarily the, the main plots of the episodes will be week by week episodic. We learned that Q will have a cameo in an upcoming episode of Lower Decks. It doesn't sound like the episode will be about Q, but Q will show up. Akiva Goldsmith, who's one of the executive producers, said he would really like to do a Lower Decks crossover episode. And it wasn't really clear what other series he wants it to cross over with, but someone did mention kind of like the Who Framed Roger Rabbit style that combined animation and live action. I think that would be difficult Weird. to write a script that would do that for the live action series at least. But uh, I, I really, as, as I watched the various panels, I was really impressed that you may or may not, not like a particular creative decision, but that these people involved in all of the different shows really do care about Star Trek as a, as a, as a thing, as a, as a philosophy, as a, as a body of work. And we should also point out uh, a couple days before that, CBS announced that the new season of Discovery is going to have two new regular characters. And they, one of the characters will be transgender and the other one will be non-binary. And the actors playing these characters will also be transgender and non-binary respectively. They're not gonna be in the first episode, but they will appear a few episodes after that. And these are both identities that Trek has kind of sort of touched on before but never, never really with this kind of continuing character. I guess Jadzia Dax uh, was a trill and the, the, the symbiont had been in a male host before and now is in a female host. But otherwise, any time transgender or non-binary has been addressed, it's been the purpose of the script, if you will. It's been the message. And, uh, and so this is really the first time we'll have ongoing characters and. I'm sure it will be touched on from point to point, but 
I'm, I'm gathering it won't be it won't be a plot point. It won't be the turning point or the the message of of an individual script. So that's that's very nice progress on the part of the Star Trek producers. Yep. So interesting week in Star Trek. Yeah. This week, but uh, getting back to lower decks, we're going to begin with a summary of this week's episode, and Michael has that for us this week. Go ahead and take it away, Michael. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we do these summaries because we may have people listening that haven't seen the episode, and we think the summary is necessary for context. So there are a few spoilers here, but there are a lot of things we leave out too, and particularly things addressing the humor. So in this episode, the Cerritos is in a standoff with a Drukmani salvage ship over some century-old wreckage of a Starfleet ship. Now, um, on the lower decks, Mariner and Boimler are interacting with Ensign Fletcher, who is one of Boimler's academy classmates. He's likable, but he's kind of inept. He actually volunteers to do some work that's assigned to Mariner and Boimler so they can go to at some kind of dance party thing. But later they find him unconscious in the corridor and in isolinear core, that's one of the shield's uh, backup systems is missing. And that's a problem because there's a chance of hostilities with the Drukmani and that backup might be needed. But Mariner wants to solve the problem, to solve it and not tell the senior officers. The ensigns suspect that Delta Shift might be responsible, but it turns out they were at the dance too. In the main main story up on the bridge, the Drukmani don't have weapons, but they start using their tractor beam to toss wreckage at Cerritos. And so the, there is a possibility of damage and the shields are on. Meanwhile, in kind of the third uh, subplot, Rutherford tells Tendi that he hopes that once they work out this thing with the Drukmani, they'll be able to do some spacewalking to retrieve wreckage. Uh, but Tendi admits that she never finished her spacewalk unit at the Academy. So Rutherford takes her to a holodeck program he's created that is able to simulate spacewalking so she can get some experience. The program Virtual Tutor is an animated Starfleet insignia called Badgie. And many people have commented that Badgie will be very familiar to people who used Windows 97. But some of the wreckage tossed by the Drukmani causes holodeck damage. The holodeck safety protocols are disabled and Badgie actually starts threatening Rutherford and Tendi. The program can't be deactivated and Badgie is turning murderous and he starts chasing the ensigns in the spacewalk uh, environment through a Bajoran marketplace environment and kind of up a long stairway to a mountain shrine. But Baggy, for some reason, starts getting tired and Rutherford tries an Ice Age environment hoping to freeze Badgie. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Mariner and Boimler discover the missing core in Fletcher's bunk he admits to them he had kind of a strange idea of using the core to make himself smarter. So he hooked it up to his brain, but the core broke and, and then he lied about it. The core, however, comes to life because Fletcher's brain waves corrupted it and it's trying to absorb anything that could make it smarter. In fact, the shields drop to the point uh, because of the Drukmani uh, conflict where Cerritos really needs the backup but it's not working, so the ship really is threatened. Mariner and Boimler drag the, the core, they grab a hold of it and drag it. They're going to take it to a transporter room, 
but it keeps getting stronger and so they whoosh it out the airlock and and it then latches onto the Drukmani ship and disables it. Rutherford and Badgie struggle in that icy environment, but Badgie does end up freezing and when Cerrito's main power is finally restored, the holodeck comes back to normal under control. Fletcher is actually promoted to lieutenant and transferred to the USS Titan because Mariner tells the senior officers that Fletcher saved the day because she wanted him to get transferred. But six days later on the Titan, or from the Titan, I should say, Fletcher tells Mariner and Boimler that he's been fired for messing up. And so that is at least an outline of uh, the story of this episode. So let's go ahead and take a look at these, uh, some of the elements that we've picked out here that seemed uh, important to us. I just wanted to say about this short teaser, uh, I, you know, I was wondering, what, what is this for? Well, it introduces Fletcher and the Lower Decks crew gets to mention Enterprise D and Voyager. And I don't know, I don't know how you feel about it, Michael, but this uh, teaser didn't do much for me. I didn't think it was very funny. Um, you know, I've, so. I've commented before that the teasers and sometimes they're called the cold opens that have nothing to do with the rest of the story don't do that much for me. I think your point that at least it introduces Fletcher is maybe the reason to do it here. It yeah. got kind of a smile from me, and we won't commit spoilers to say what it is, but if people haven't watched it, if they see it, it got kind of a smile from me. But I guess I prefer humor in Lower Decks that's a little bit less slapstick. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I noticed, the wrecked cargo ship, I think it was very clearly based on the grain cargo ship's in the original animated series episode, More Tribbles, More Troubles. Uh, and some people out there on the internet have noted that it also looks like the Antares from the remastered version of the original series episode, Charlie X. But the Antares has some kind of, it's not exactly a saucer section, but it's sort of hexagonal, a thing sticking out in front that this vessel in this episode didn't have. Now, Memory Alpha claims that they're the same type ship, but that the version without the forward section is an automated configuration, which is what they were in More Troubles, More Tribbles. Uh, interesting, the Antares did not appear in the original version of Charlie X, but when they remastered the episodes with new uh, computer graphics for the 21st century, it was, it was added in. So there, there are people that don't know the version of the episode that doesn't have Antares. As long as we're talking about ships, I should add that the USS Titan is the ship commanded by Will Riker after the movie Star Trek Nemesis. Right. That might explain why that's Boimler's dream job, right? Could Sorry, be. Uh, Riker, yeah. wanted to say this about Shax, something I noticed. He recommends a full assault on the Drukmani vessel, uh, rather, and he doesn't like the Freeman's diplomatic approach. He's unimpressed with it. And this just sort of reminded me of, of uh, the original series, which looking back on it now, I mean, when I watch it now, it, 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 the, the series seems to have a, a dim view of diplomacy. Maybe that was just a product of, its, of television at that time. But um, there's Scotty saying in A Taste of Armageddon, the best diplomat I know is a fully activated phaser bank. And even Spock gets in on this. In The Mark of Gideon, he says diplomats and bureaucrats may function differently, but they achieve exactly the same results. So Shaq seems pretty old school here. I guess uh, Worf, uh, 
was always a little maybe too quick to fire phasers uh, if memory serves could be that that's that's really part of the humor there that the chief security always wants to go off the deep end in terms of the hostilities the that um, so but usually it works pretty well this is the latest in a long series of holodeck malfunction episodes in Trek going all the way back to the first, well, not the first, but among the first appearances of the holodeck in The Next Generation. Many of the holodeck malfunction episodes aren't that great. Some of them are, are notable, like well, uh, the one on which Mar Moriarty appeared, for example. Right. Well, I was going to ask you, is yeah. that, do you have a favorite? And would that be it? Uh, I'd, I'd have to think. But that, but I mean, that, that's a notable one. I think that was, I'd have to go look. That's one of the earlier ones. Um, so, and, and that was certainly well done, but it's also kind of a, kind of a trope, you know, if you talk about cliche Star Trek scripts, that's holodeck malfunction. So I, I, um, you know, I'm sorry that I have to apply a little more science here, but, but Badgie's program could not be deactivated, but it was easy for them to switch from the spacewalk setting to the Bajoran marketplace setting. And, and, and switch environments too. Yeah. Well, yeah. If if the program was mostly locked up, I mean that. I apparently apparently Rutherford programmed many of these different environments into the program, so he wasn't really switching programs. He was just switching environments within the program. But but if the program was locked up, so we couldn't deactivate it, how come the rest of the functionality seemed to work? That was that was a kind of a plot point that. Uh, that if you think about it, didn't work quite as well. Yeah, I think maybe there are a few plotting problems with this episode. I'll, I'll get to my complaint later, I guess. Okay. Something I, I wanted to talk about here, uh, we talked, I think, in our first episode about the series creator, David McMahon's ties to uh, Rick and Morty. And um, Badgie reminded me of a character from Rick and Morty. I, you know, I agree. I, I can see the, the connection between Badgie and, and Clippy. But there's this character in, the, in this first season episode of Rick and Morty named Mr. Meeseeks. And uh, he or they appear in the episode Meeseeks and Destroy. And in that episode, Rick gives his family this Meeseeks box. And if you want to get something done, it's got to be simple. You press the button on the box and then a Meeseeks appears. And then you make a request. The Meeseeks fulfills the request. And then the Meeseeks just puffs out of existence. But when Mr. Meeseeks is asked to do something, he sometimes says, can do, or yes, sirree. And that reminded me of Badgie. When Rutherford asks Badgie for something, he says, you got it, or coming right up. In this similar tone of voice, and he's giving a thumbs up, very cheerful. And in that episode, Meeseeks and Destroy, uh, the Meeseeks creatures turn homicidal, just like Badgie does here. So I, I couldn't help but, but be reminded of, of, of that and those similarities. And it's very likely that there was an inspiration there. I don't know Rick and Morty, but so I did, I did more resonate with the Clippy from Windows 97. But in kind of uh, broader terms, it, Badgie resonates with Siri and Alexa and Cortana and I've never found them to be very helpful. <laughs> right. um, they always want to do something I don't want to do. <laughs> so that, that, that there is maybe a little bit, bit of that social, social comment there. Absolutely. 
couple of other notes, just uh, miscellaneous notes. Um, we find out when our four ensigns are talking to Delta Shift that, that our, our guys are Beta Shift. They're not even Alpha Shift. In a traditional Star Trek series where it's about the senior officers or that, at least you'd kind of expect our heroes to be Alpha Shift, but they're not even Alpha Shift. They're Beta Shift. Captain Freeman, when they're talking about this salvage, goes, those freights are brimming with unique Starfleet technology, but, but we're told that the wreck is 100 years old, and that means back before the Wrath of Khan. Um, now, you know, Starfleet ships were cool back then, too, but the unique Starfleet technology that's 100 years old still has to be protected to that level. It kind of made me wonder. I did note, though, that again this episode, when, when Captain Freeman is on the bridge being captain, She's actually doing a pretty good job, even though the rest of the time, like she's doing stuff in her ready room, she's kind of selfish and, and petty. But she, I mean, she was doing what we would expect from a good Starfleet captain in this episode. I agree. I guess the characters, I mean, maybe they're rounding them out because you're right. I mean, in private or, or just with, you know, fellow officers, she, she does seem a little petty and like you say, selfish. But, but I think she's a pretty good captain, really. Another thing about Freeman, have we heard her say, we're Starfleet, damn it, before? It seems to me we have, and I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if that's her catchphrase. I'm not sure if that's the exact quote or not, but uh, yeah, it could be. I'll have to and go we, back. And we know she's looking for a catchphrase. Yeah, that's right. From her previous <laughs> episode. Nausicans are mentioned here, and they've, they've appeared now and then, or been mentioned at least now and then. Most notably... A Nausicaan stabbed young Ensign Jean-Luc Picard through the heart, resulting in him having an artificial heart back from when he was an Ensign. So all of the time we've known Picard, he has an artificial heart. And speaking of hearts, they they threaten to eat Boimler's heart, apparently. And so I'm I'm sensing a pattern here, some sort of preoccupation. That could uh, be, that could be. Just a couple other notes. When Rutherford switches to the Ice Age, or what I call the Ice Age environment, pretty much all the mountains in the background look a little bit like Vasquez rocks, just the, the pointed rocks up at an angle. And I also note that when, when Fletcher says he's learned his lesson, Mariner launches into kind of a heartfelt speech about being Star Trek and, and learning from mistakes, which I think is a good, a good message. But of course, it's interrupted by the core coming to life. That's a bit of humor there, her, her grand speech. And how many times have we oh, heard right. Star Trek characters made, make a grand speech about something? Uh, yeah, speeches then, don't work in this series. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Um, something about Rutherford. In a previous episode... You remember how Rutherford fought a dozen or so Borg in the combat simulation in an mm-hmm. earlier episode. Yeah. I, I was kind of surprised that Rutherford didn't have an easier time taking care of Badgie, but I guess then it wouldn't have been as interesting. So, but that was a real struggle. Yeah. Uh, I, I also noticed that when Mariner, right at the end of the episode, says Fletcher is Earth's problem now, did you notice she and Boimler both do the cool... Vulcan salute wave, but it's kind of interesting that the in a traditional Vulcan, the 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 palm is is upright, it's vertical, and yep. the palm is faced out towards the person you're talking to. When they do the palm chest, the 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 palm the hand is sideways, and the in the palm is facing their chest, and they just kind of wave it wave it up and down to be cool. So 
I, the first time through, I didn't notice they were doing that in this episode, but but they both do in response to uh, to the news from Fletcher. There's a lot of stuff to catch here. A lot of visual things can, that can easily be missed. One thing I did notice, uh, I think Mariner does listen because she didn't she use her mother's method of getting rid of troublesome crew members? I mean, she hatched this plan to get Fletcher promoted so that he would be transferred. That was basically yeah. Freeman's method to get rid of uh, Mariner in that earlier yeah. episode. It's kind mm-hmm. of funny. She learns fast. <laughs> She applies her experiences. In this episode, several times they mentioned the cue, just in passing, but that reminds us, and I guess it's not exactly a spoiler because I mentioned it earlier when we were talking about Star Trek Day, but we know that that Q, voiced by John Delancey, will appear at least briefly in one of the episodes later this season. Now, hold on a second, Michael. Did they say that John Delancey would do the voice? Yes, they did. Wow. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's going to be fun. Or they better make it fun. I'm I, looking I, forward to that. My impression is it's a brief appearance, so he probably only ended up having to record one or two sentences or something like that. I, I don't know. but uh, I'll take it. But anyway, so, so they mentioned the cue several times to sort of set that up. And the final little minor thing that I noted was the keys to the captain's yacht are on a keychain that has Tribble on it. It's a Tribble keychain. And notice that she, even though Starfleet uniforms don't have pockets, she just pulled it out from behind her back as cartoon <laughs> characters for decades have done. You know, just pulled something out from behind their back. Uh, and you hardly notice it unless you're looking for it. So. You know, under that fur, the tribbles, it's basically all meat. Did you know that, Michael? Um, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe you could, uh, like solve hunger crisis that way or something, unless right. they take, unless they take over your ship. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. You don't <laughs> want that to happen. No. So, okay. Well, let's go ahead and move on to, uh, messages, morals, meanings. What are any philosophical things we might've noticed? Anything that if we dig a little deeper, we can take away from this episode. And I think you and I both found some pretty interesting stuff here. I mean, number one, as the story arc of the season progresses, and even though essentially this is a standalone series, also standalone episode series, the characters are developing and changing and growing. And this is the episode in which really kind of for the first time, Mariner and Boimler, they, don't all, they, they not only work together well and realize they're working together well, but they actually tell each other that sometimes they can be not annoying too. So, you know, we watched them starting in the first episode, they were almost hostile towards each other, yep. confrontational and, and working together, not really wanting to, but we've watched them over the episodes getting, getting closer and, and, and closer. And one episode I suggested, maybe they're setting up something romantic there. I'm not quite thinking that as much now, but they are developing a closer relationship where they, where they see each other's benefits and, in a way like Mulder and Scully were in the X-Files, they're, they're opposites, but they, more and more, they're, they're working together well. Yeah, they find a way to work together. And uh, yeah, it was Mariner and Boimler, they were, I don't, did they fight at all in this episode? Not really, they were on Not the really, same no, page yeah. the whole way through. Mm-hmm. I, I guess Boimler wanted it to be known that Mariner ha- had put him in danger before. 
but I think that's about it. <laughs> and he's not wrong about that. I The main takeaway from me for this episode was responsibility. I think that was the theme of the episode. This will take a while for me to to go through this, but if you think about it, so let's look at Rutherford first. He takes responsibility for his mistake of putting Tendi in this simulation that wasn't really ready to go. And he admits to her that he did it because he wanted to impress her. And she's so cute. Um, but he he owns up to that. He confesses that to her. So he's he's taking responsibility for his screw up. Fletcher, on the other hand, he will not take responsibility for anything, even if the ship is in danger. At one point, Mariner tells him that the core, which is running amok, could mess up the ship if it gets loose. And even then, Fletcher refuses to alert the captain and attacks it with a tricorder, as if that's going to help. Now, as long as Mariner and Boimler help him avoid responsibility, he works with them. But whenever Fletcher thinks that he's going to be held accountable or he's going to get in trouble, he turns on them and starts to threaten them. He, at one point he says, you help me, or I'll say this, is, this was your idea. I'm not going down for this, even though this is really his responsibility. I mean, this is something that, that the problem is, is of his own creation. And that's another problem with Fletcher. He benefits from this principle, lower deck stands together, the principle that Boimler said they, they should rethink. But he's not willing to reciprocate, right? As Boimler says, he says, all we do is back you up, and all you do is lie. He's kind of like this freeloader, Fletcher is. He takes unfair advantage of this principle and, uh, and of his beta shift crewmates, um, but he doesn't reciprocate. And you just don't want to be around people like that, I'm afraid. But uh, as a result of this episode, I think, <clears throat> it makes the main characters, it makes all of them look good. So Mariner, she's a rule breaker, but she says, and I think she's right, she breaks only dumb rules that shouldn't be there so I can do a better job. She doesn't, she says, I don't put my you know, fellow crew in, in jeopardy or in danger. And Boimler says to her, and he said this before, but he said, yeah, you break rules all the time, but at your heart, you're Starfleet. And, and I think that's true. Boimler, speaking of Boimler, yes, he's green in certain ways, but I, in my estimation, I think he's probably more competent and knowledgeable than your typical ensign. And that really comes across in this episode. Speaking of Tendi, she feels terrible about not completing her spacewalk unit at the academy. I mean, she, she actually feels remorse about that. And she's trying to make up for it in, in the holodeck. And then finally, Rutherford, right? He takes responsibility for his mistake, as I said before, and he even risks his life to help keep Tendi safe, to save her life. So all of our main characters end up looking good and maybe a bit more Starfleet than they have before. But this does lead to the question, how in the heck did Fletcher get this far in Starfleet? I mean, he, he can negotiate, he's charming, but I mean, that, that's only gonna go so far, right? So that, that may be a, a, a plot issue. What, what on earth is he doing as an ensign on a, on a Starfleet ship like this. You know, I think Gene Roddenberry was quoted early on as saying that as far as he was concerned, everyone on the Starship is a fully trained and qualified astronaut. Uh, so you would expect even someone rarely recently graduated from Starfleet Academy to 
to be indoctrinated with with duty and honor and things like that. But you know it, and I and I can't I can't give you examples. But it sure seems to me that in many TV series, books, things like that, we have seen characters that are similar, kind of a an archetype type type character that you know the person who's irresponsible, you know maybe enjoys life is but is not dependable, irresponsible. So I, I don't think Fletcher is a, is a completely new kind of creation. I think that, and I wish I could give you some examples off the top of my head, but uh, you know, we often see, see characters like that, that as part of the story are not as responsible as we want them to be. And whatever the story is, the main characters kind of have to, have to make right. up for that. Right. Um, I mean, I, I kind of I touched on it earlier, but I, I really think one of the important developments of this script is just that fact that Poimler and Mariner are working together and they didn't they didn't have to decide we're going to work together they didn't have to figure out whether it's in their best interest they just did they just they just meshed immediately without thinking about it and and number one I think that I think that makes the audience feel good we you know, although there's some humor in them being antagonistic to each other we like it when our Starfleet heroes do perform well and work with each other and that and uh, and this this episode really in in their relationship and they're working together was a lot different from like episodes one or two where they were very intentionally antagonistic yeah and we also saw i think uh development in the relationship between rutherford and tendy i wouldn't be surprised if if they're dating by the season finale uh, rutherford told tendy that he thinks she's really cool and he, and he confessed to her why he, he put her in that simulation. And Tendy said to Rutherford that he impresses her every day. So I feel like they're also getting closer, although in a different way, I guess, than Boimer and, and uh, Mariner. Kind of the final thought I have, I want to go back to that idea of, is there a way to do a crossover episode of Lower Decks and in a live action series? And as I said earlier, they talked about some kind of Roger Rabbit combination of live and animation. But you know, if it were me, I'd do a crossover episode, but with the Lower Decks characters cast as live action characters. I mean, if you go back, the original animated series, we saw all of the regular Enterprise bridge crew in animation. And there have even been a couple of cases where a character that first appeared in animation did end up showing up uh, at least as a background extra character in in live action, like the 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 cat communications officer in the the original animated series, and and we have seen in live action some feline type uh, type type characters. So why not go the other way? In fact, I think that they could they could use the voice performers that that voice these different characters as live action. You know, maybe it's because they're a few more years down the road if they're going to appear in Picard, or maybe there's some kind of time travel involved. I don't know. But uh, I would just be just as happy if they would. Plus, Marvel does it all the time. You know, characters that were originated in animation that we now see as live action. I'd be right. just happy if they did the crossover that way rather than kind of artificially try to put, you know, the strange new world enterprise meeting cartoon characters yeah. due to some weird thing. You know, the more I think about it, Michael, um, the less I want to see a Roger Rabbit style crossover. I'm, I'm imagining it, and that's not going to work. Yeah, I, I, think I wouldn't. That, yeah. 
yeah, I, they, I, yeah, please don't do that, producers. But they could do it with live action and make it. Um, Star Trek. Star Trek has a history of humorous episodes, so Absolutely. they could do something that would reflect some of the feel of Lower Decks and some of the feel of whatever other series it's crossing over with, and uh, and uh, and be a win-win. I think so. Yeah, I would like to see the voice actors do that. That I would like to see. So we can cross our fingers, I guess. I guess so. We'll see. All right. I guess that does it for this week. Uh, thank you all for joining us. This was the Star Trek Academy. This is a podcast that responds to every new Star Trek episode. I know we keep saying this, but we're just reminding you. Uh, we're responding to Lower Decks now, and later on we're going to do uh, the third season of Discovery. You can find new episodes at the Star Trek Academy.blogspot.com. And that site, we've also put uh, links to podcatching software there for your convenience. So join us again next week for the Star Trek Academy podcast. We'll see you then.